0: Chapter Eight, Part One of the Voyage of the Beagle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by M.C.Y. The Voyage of the Beagle by Charles Darwin. Chapter Eight. Buenos Oriental in Patagonia. Excursion to Colonia del Sacramento. Value of an Estancia. Kettle how counted, singular breed of oxen, perforated pebbles, shepherd dogs, horses broken in, gauchos riding, character of inhabitants, rio plata, flocks of butterflies, aeronaut spiders, phosphorescence of the sea, poor desire, guanaco, port St. Julian, geology of Patagonia, fossil gigantic animal, TYPES OF ORGANIZATION CONSTANT CHANGING THE ZOOLOGY OF AMERICA CAUSES OF extinction. Having been delayed for nearly a fortnight in the city, I was glad to escape on board a packet bound for Montevideo. A town in a state of blockade must always be a disagreeable place of residence. In this case, moreover, there were constant apprehensions from robbers within. The sentinels were the worst of all, for, from their office and from having arms in their hands, they robbed a degree of authority which other men could not imitate. Our passage was a very long and tedious one. The plata looks like a noble estuary on the map, but it is, in truth, a poor affair. A wide expanse of muddy water has neither grandeur nor beauty. At one time of the day the two shores, both of which are extremely low, could just be distinguished from the deck. On arriving at Montevideo, I found that the Beagle would not sail for some time, so I prepared for a short excursion in this part of Banda Oriental. Everything which I have said about the country near Maldonado is applicable to Montevideo, but the land, with the one exception of the Greying Mount, 550 feet high, from which it takes its name, is far more level. Very little of the undulating grassy plain is enclosed, but near the town there are a few hedge-banks, covered with agaves cacti, and fennel. November 14th. We left Montevideo in the afternoon. I intended to proceed to Colonia del Sacramento, situated on the northern bank of the Plata, and opposite to Buenos Aires, and thence, following up the Uruguay to the village of Mercedes, on the Rio Negro, one of the many rivers of this name in South America, and from this point returned direct to Montevideo. We slept at the house of my guide at Canelones, In the morning we rose early, in the hopes of being able to ride a good distance, but it was a vain attempt, for all the rivers were flooded. We passed in boats the streams of Canelones, Santa Lucia, and San Jose, and this lost much time. On a former excursion across the Lucia, near its mouth, and I was surprised to observe how easily our horses, although not used to swim, passed over a width of at least six hundred yards. On mentioning this at Montevideo, I was told that a vessel containing some mount Manx and their horses, being wrecked in the Plata, one horse swam seven miles to the shore. In the course of the day I was amused by the dexterity with which a gaucho forced a restive horse to swim a river. He stripped off his clothes, and, jumping on its back, rode into the water till it was out of this depth. Then, slipping off over the crepper, he caught hold of the tail. And as often as the horse turned round the man flattened it back by splashing water into its face. As soon as the horse touched the bottom on the other side, the man pulled himself on and was firmly seated, bridle in hand, before the horse gained the bank. A naked man on a naked horse is a finer spectacle. I had no idea how well the two animals suited each other. The tail of a horse is a very useful appendage. I have passed a river in a boat, with four people in it, which was ferried across in the same way as the gaucho. If a man and horse have to cross a broad river, the best plan is for the man to catch hold of the pommel or mane, and help himself with the other arm. We slept and stayed the following day at the post of Cufre. In the evening the postman, our letter carrier, arrived. He was a day after his time, owing to the Rio Rosario being flooded. It would not, however, be of much consequence, for although he had passed through some of the principal towns in Banda Oriental, his luggage consisted of two letters. The view from the house was pleasing, an undulating green surface with distant glimpses of the plata. I find that I look at this province with very different eyes from what I did upon my first arrival. I recollect I then thought it singularly level, but now, after galloping over the pampas, my only surprise is what could have induced me ever to call it level. The country is a series of undulations, in themselves perhaps not absolutely great, but as compared to the plain of Santa Fe, real mountains. From these inequalities there is an abundance of small rivulets, and the turf is green and luxuriant. November seventeenth, we cross the Rosario, which was deep and rapid, and passing the village of Coya arrived at midday at Colônia de Sacramento. The distance is twenty leagues through a country covered with fine grass, but poorly stocked with cattle or inhabitants. I was invited to sleep at Colônia, and to accompany on the following day a gentleman to his estancia, where there were some limestone rocks. The town is built on a stony promontory, something in the same manner as at Montevideo. It is strongly fortified, but both fortifications and town suffered much in the Brazilian War, It is very ancient, and the irregularity of the streets and the surrounding groves of old orange and peach trees gave it a pretty appearance. The church is a curious ruin. It was used as a powder magazine, and was struck by lightning in one of the ten thousand thunderstorms of the Rio Plata. Two-thirds of the building were blown away to the very foundation, and the rest stands a shattered and curious monument of the united powers of lightning and gunpowder. In the evening I wandered about the half-demolished walls of the town. It was the chief seat of the Brazilian war, a war most injurious to this country, not so much in its immediate effects as in being the origin of a multitude of generals and all other grades of officers. More generals are numbered, but not paid, in the United Provinces of La Plata than in the United Kingdom of Great Britain, These gentlemen have learned to like power, and do not object to a little skirmishing, hence there are many always on the watch to create disturbance and to overturn a government which as yet has never rested on any stable foundation. I noticed, however, both here and in other places, a very general interest in the ensuing election for the President, and this appears a good sign for the prosperity of this little country. The inhabitants do not require much education in their representatives. I heard some men discussing the merits of those for a Colonia, and it was said that although they were not men of business, they could all sign their names. With this, they seemed to think every reasonable man ought to be satisfied. Eighteenth, rode with my host to his estancia at the Arroyo de San Juan. In the evening, we took a ride round the state, it contained two square leagues and a half, and was situated in what is called a rincón. That is, one side was fronted by the Plata, and the two others guarded by impassable brooks. There was an excellent port for little vessels, and an abundance of small wood, which is valuable as supplying fuel to Buenos Aires. I was curious to know the value of so complete an estancia. A kettle there were three thousand and it would well support three or four times that number, of mares eight hundred, together with a hundred fifty broken-in horses, and six hundred sheep. There was plenty of water and limestone, a rough house, excellent corals, and a peach orchard. For all these he had been offered two thousand pounds, and he only wanted five hundred pounds additional, and probably would sell it for less. The chief trouble with an estancia is driving the cattle twice a week to a central spot in order to make them tame and to count them. This latter operation would be thought difficult where there are ten or fifteen thousand head together. It is managed on the principle that the cattle invariably divide themselves into little troops of from forty to one hundred. Each troop is recognized by a few peculiarly marked animals and its number is known so that one being lost out of 10,000, it is perceived by its absence for one of the torpilias. During a stormy night the cattle all mingle together, but the next morning the torpilias separate as before, so that each animal must know its fellow out of 10,000 others. On two occasions I met within this province some oxen of a very curious breed, called Nata or Niata. They appear externally to hold nearly the same relation to other cattle, which bull or pook dogs do to other dogs. Their forehead is very short and broad, with the nasal end turned up and the upper lip much drawn back. Their lower jaws project beyond the upper and have a corresponding upward curve, hence their teeth are always exposed. Their nostrils are seated high up and are very open. The eyes project outwards. When walking, they carry their heads low, on a short neck, and their hindered legs are rather longer compared with the front legs than is usual. Their bare teeth, their short heads, and upturned nostrils give them the most ludicrous self-confident air of defiance imaginable. Since my return, I have procured a skeleton head, through the kindness of my friend Captain Sullivan R. N which is now deposited in the College of Surgeons. Don F. Muniz, of Luxan has kindly collected for me all the information which he could, respecting this breed. Note 1. Mr. Waterhouse has drawn up a detailed description of this head, which I hope he will publish in some journal. From his account it seems that about eighty or ninety years ago they were rare and kept as curiosities at Buenos Aires, The breed is universally believed to have originated amongst the Indians southward of the Plata, and that it was, with them, the commonest kind. Even to this day, those reared in the provinces near the Plata show their less civilized origin, in being fiercer than common cattle, and in the cow easily deserting his first calf, if visited too often or molested. It is a singular fact that an almost similar structure to the abnormal one of the Dinata breed characterizes, as I am informed by Dr. Falconer, that great extinct ruminant of India, the Sivatherium. Note two. A nearly similar abnormal, but I do not know whether hereditary, structure has been observed in the carp. And likewise in the crocodile of the Ganges, Histoire des anomalies par M. Isid, Geoffroy, saint Tom. 1st, page 244. The breed is very true, In a bull and cow invariably produce Niata calves. A Niata bull with a common cow, or the reverse cross, produces offspring having an intermediate character, but with the Niata characters strongly displayed. According to Senor Muniz, there is the clearest evidence, contrary to the common belief of agriculturists in analogous cases, that the Niata cow, when crossed with a common bull, transmits her peculiarities more strongly than the Niata bull when crossed with a common cow. When the pasture is tolerably long, the Niata cattle feed with the tongue and palate, as well as common cattle. But during the great drafts, when so many animals perish, the Niata breed is under a greater disadvantage, and would be exterminated if not attended to, for the common cattle, like horses, are able just to keep alive by browsing with their lips on twigs of trees and reeds. These vignatas cannot so well do, as their lips do not join, and hence they are found to perish before the common cattle. This strikes me as a good illustration of how little we are able to judge from the ordinary habits of life on what circumstances, occurring only at long intervals, the rarity of or extinctions of a species may be determined. November 19th Passing the valley of Las Vacas, we slept at the house of a North American who worked a lime kiln in the arroyo de las Vívoras. In the morning we rode to a protecting headland on the banks of the river called Punta Gorda. On the way we tried to find a jaguar, There were plenty of fresh tracks, and we visited the trees, on which they are said to sharpen their claws, but we did not succeed in disturbing one. From this point the Rio Uruguay presented to our view a noble volume of water. From the clearness and rapidity of the stream, its appearance was far superior to that of its neighbor, the Paraná. On the opposite coast, several branches from the latter river entered the Uruguay, As the sun was shining, the two colors of the waters could be seen quite distinct. In the evening we proceeded on our road towards Mercedes on the Rio Negro. At night we asked permission to sleep at an estancia at which we happened to arrive. It was a very large state, being ten leagues square, and the owner is one of the greatest landowners in the country. His nephew had charge of it. And with him there was a captain in the army, who the other day ran away from Buenos Aires. Considering their station, their conversation was rather amusing. They expressed, as was usual, unbounded astonishment at the globe being round, and could scarcely credit that a hole would, if deep enough, come out on the other side. They had, however, heard of a country where there were six months of light and six of darkness, and where the inhabitants were very tall and thin. They were curious about the price and condition of horses and cattle in Catalan, England. Upon finding out we did not catch our animal with the lasso, they cried out, Ah, then, you use nothing but the bolus. The idea of an enclosed country was quite new to them. The captain at last said he had one question to ask me, which he should be very much obliged if I would answer with all truth. I trembled to think how deeply scientific it would be, he was whether the ladies of Buenos Aires were not the handsomest in the world, I replied like a renegade, charmingly so he added, "I have one other question: Do ladies in any other part of the world wear such large combs? I solemnly assured him that they did not. They were absolutely delighted. The captain explained, Look there." A man who has seen half the world says it is the case. We always thought so, but now we know it. My excellent judgment in combs and beauty procured me a most hospitable reception. The captain forced me to take his bed, and he would sleep on his ricado. Twenty-first, Started at sunrise, and rode slowly during the whole day. The geological nature of this part of the province was different from the rest and closely resembled that of the pampas. In consequence, there were immense beds of the thistle, as well as of the cardoon. The whole country, indeed, may be called one great bed of these plants. The two sorts grow separate, each plant in company with its own kind. The cardoon is as high as a horse's back, but the pampas' thistle is often higher than the crown of the rider's head. To leave the road for a yard is out of the question, And the road itself is partly and in some cases entirely closed. Pasture, of course, there is none. If cattle or horses once enter the bed, they are for the time completely lost. Hence it is very hazardous to attempt to drive cattle at this season of the year, for when jaded enough to face the thistles, they rush among them and are seen no more. In these districts, there are very few estancias, and these few are situated in the neighborhood of damp valleys where, fortunately, neither of these overwhelming plants can exist. As night came on before we arrived at our journey's end, we slept at a miserable little hovel inhabited by the poorest people. The extreme though rather formal courtesy of our host and hostess, considering the rate of life, was quite delightful. November 22nd. Arrived at an estancia in the Berquello, belonging to a very hospitable englishman to whom i had a letter of introduction from my friend mr Lum, i stayed here three days one morning i rode with my host to the sierra del pedro flaco about twenty miles up the rio negro nearly the whole country was covered with good though coarse grass which was as high as a horse's belly yet there were square leagues without a single head of cattle the province of Bundoriental oriental if well-stocked, would support an astonishing number of animals. At present, the annual export of hides from Montevideo amounts to 300,000, and the home consumption from waste is very considerable. An estanciero told me that he often had to send large herds of cattle a long journey to a salting establishment, and that the tired beasts were frequently obliged to be killed and skinned, but that he could never persuade the gauchos to eat of them, and every evening a fresh beast was slaughtered for their suppers. The view of the Rio Negro from the Sierra was more picturesque than any other which I saw in this province. The river, broad, deep, and rapid, wounded the foot of a rocky precipitous cliff, a belt of wood followed its course, and the horizon terminated in the distant undulations of the turf plain. When in this neighbourhood I several times heard of the Sierra de las Cuentas, a hill distant many miles from the northward. The name signifies Hill of Beads. I was assured that vast numbers of little round stones of various colours, each with a small cylindrical hole, were found there. Formerly, the Indians used to collect them, for the purpose of making necklaces and bracelets, a taste, I may observe, which is common to all savage nations as well as to the most polished. I do not know what to understand from this story, but upon mentioning it at the Cape of Good Hope to Dr. Andrew Smith, he told me that he recollected finding on the southeastern coast of Africa, about one hundred miles to the eastward of St. John's River, some quartz crystals, with their edges blunted from attrition, and mixed with gravel on the sea beach. Each crystal was about five lines in diameter, and from an inch to an inch and a half in length. Many of them had a small canal, extending from one extremity to the other, perfectly cylindrical, and of a size that readily admitted a coarse thread or a piece of fine catgut. Their color was red or dull white. The natives were acquainted with this structure in crystals. I have mentioned these circumstances because, although no crystallized body is at present known to assume this form, it may lead some future traveller to investigate the real nature of such stones. While staying at this Estancia, I was amused with what I saw and heard of the shepherd-dogs of the country. When riding, it is a common thing to meet a large flock of sheep guarded by one or two dogs at a distance of some miles from any house or man. Note, M. A. Dorbigny has given nearly a similar account of these dogs, Tom, 1st, page 100, 75. I often wondered how so firm a friendship has been established. The method of education consists in separating the puppy while very young from the bitch, and in accustoming it to its future companions. A ewe is held three or four times a day for the little thing to suck, and a nest of wool is made for it in the sheep pen. At no time it is allowed to associate with other dogs or with the children of the family. The puppy is, moreover, generally castrated, so that, when grown up, it can scarcely have any feelings in common with the rest of its kind. From this education it has no wish to leave the flock, and just as another dog will defend its master, man, so will this the sheep. It is amusing to observe, when approaching a flock, how the dog immediately advances barking, and the sheep all close in his rear, as if round, the oldest ram. These dogs are also easily taught to bring home the flock at a certain hour in the evening. Their most troublesome fault, when young, is their desire of playing with the sheep, for in their sport they sometimes gallop their poor subjects most unmercifully. The shepherd-dog comes to the house every day for some meat, and as soon as it is given him he skulks away as if ashamed of himself. On these occasions the house dogs are very tyrannical, and the least of them will attack and pursue the stranger. The minute, however, the latter has reached the flock, he turns round and begins to bark, and then all the house dogs take very quickly to their heels. In a similar manner a whole pack of the hungry wild dogs will scarcely ever, and I was told by some never, venture to attack a flock guarded by even one of these faithful shepherds. The whole account appears to me a curious instance of the pliability of the affections in the dog, and yet, whether wild or however educated, he has a feeling of respect or fear for those that are fulfilling their instinct of association. For we can understand on no principle the wild dog's being driven away by the single one with its flock, except that they consider, from some confused notion, that one's associated gains power as if in company with its own kind. F. Cuvier has observed that all animals that readily entered into domestication consider man as a member of their own society, and thus fulfill their instinct of association. In the above case, the shepherd-dog ranks the sheep as its fellow-brethren, and thus gains confidence. And the wild dogs, though knowing that the individual sheep are not dogs, but are good to eat, yet partly consent to this view when seeing them in a flock with a shepherd-dog at their head. One evening a dormidor, a subduer of horses, came for the purpose of breaking in some colts. I will describe the preparatory steps, for I believe they have not been mentioned by other travellers. A troop of wild young horses is driven into the corral, or large enclosure of a stakes, and the door is shut. We will suppose that one man alone has to catch and mount a horse which, as yet, had never felt bridle or saddle. I conceive except by a gaucho such a feat would be utterly impracticable. The gaucho picks out a full-grown coat, and as a beast rushes round the circus, he throws his lasso so as to catch both the front legs. Instantly, the horse rolls over with a heavy shock and whilst struggling on the ground, the gaucho. Holding the lasso tight, makes a circle, so as to catch one of the hind legs just beneath the fetlock, and draws it close to the two front legs. He then hitches the lasso, so that the three are bound together. Then, sitting on the horse's neck, he fixes a strong bridle without a bit to the lower jaw. This he does by passing a narrow thong through the eye holes at the end of the reins, and several times round both jaw and tongue. The two front legs are now tied closely together with a strong leathern thong, fastened by a slip-knot. The lasso, which bound the three together, being then loosed, the horse rises with difficulty. The gaucher now holding fast the bridle, fixed to the lower jaw, leads the horse outside the corral. If a second man is present, otherwise the trouble is much greater, he holds the animal's head, whilst the first puts on the horse's cloths and saddle, and girths the hold together. During this operation, the horse, from dread and astonishment, thus being bound round the waist, throws himself over and over again on the ground, and, till beaten, is unwilling to rise. Alas, when the saddling is finished, the poor animal can hardly breathe from fear, and is white with foam and sweat. The man now prepares to mount by pressing heavily on the stirrup, so that the horse may not lose its balance and at the moment that he throws his leg over the animal's back, he pulls the slipknot binding the front legs, and the beast is free. Some domadores pull the knot while the animal is lying on the ground, and in standing over the saddle allow him to rise beneath them. The horse, wide with dread, gives a few most violent bounds, and then starts off at full gallop. When quite exhausted, the man, by patience, brings him back to the corral, where, reeking hot and scarcely alive, the poor beast is let free. Those animals which will not gallop away, but obstinately throw themselves on the ground, are by far the most troublesome. This process is tremendously severe, but in two or three trials the horse is tamed. It is not, however, for some weeks that the animal is riding with the iron bit and solid ring, for it must learn to associate the will of its rider with the feel of the rain, before the most powerful bridle can be of any service. Animals are so abundant in these countries that humanity and self interest are not closely united. Therefore, I fear it is that the former is here scarcely known. One day, riding in the Pampas with a very respectable estanciero, my horse, being tired, lagged behind. The man often shouted to me to spur him. When I remonstrated that it was a pity, for the horse was quite exhausted, he cried out, "'Why not? Never mind! Spur him! It is my horse!' I had then some difficulty in making him comprehend that it was for the horse's sake, and not in his account, that I did not choose to use my spurs. He exclaimed with a look of great surprise, "'Ah, Don Carlos, que cosa!' It was clear that such an idea had never before entered his head. "'The Gauchos are well known to be perfect riders.' The idea of being thrown—let the horse do what it likes—never enters their head. Their criterion of a good rider is a man who can manage an untamed coat, or who, if his horse falls, alights on his own feet, or can perform other such exploits. I have heard of a man betting that he would throw his horse down twenty times, and that nineteen times he would not fall himself. I recollect seeing a go to riding a very stubborn horse. Which three times successfully reared so high as to fall backwards with great violence. The man judged with uncommon coolness the proper moment for slipping off, not an instant before or after the right time, and as soon as the horse got up, the man jumped on his back, and at last they started at a gallop. The gaucho never appears to exert any muscular force. I was one day watching a good rider as we were galloping along at a rapid pace, and thought to myself, Surely, if the horse starts, you appeared so careless on your seat, you must fall at this moment. A male ostrich sprang from its nest right beneath the horse's nose. The young coat bounded on one side like a stag. but, as for the man, all that could be said was that he started and took fright with his horse. End of chapter Eight, Part One.